welcoming you to this week's Citizens Climate University. It's a weekly webinar program on Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides CCL supporters like you and I with access to in-depth training on topics relating to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Brett Cease, and tonight we're going to join a topic near and dear to a lot of people's interest area that I know people are excited to have us launch into, all about local and state-level experiences with clean energy permitting reform. We're going to be joined from CCLers and experts around the country who will share their experiences in being involved with state and local campaigns to support clean energy permitting and siting. And to get us through tonight, we're going to be joined by three wonderful guest speakers. For the first half, we're going to have two friends from KO Media, John O'Brien, also a CCL volunteer and KO Media's Advocacy Program Director, as well as Ignacio Barragan, KO Media's Vice President for Public Relations and Affairs. After that, we'll have Q&A, and then we'll have the wonderful John Smiley, also a CCL volunteer and CCL Indiana liaison, walk us through what he's been up to, and as well as some additional considerations on the state and local strategic level. And we've done our job well. We're going to provide everyone tonight with the following three learning goals. We want to have the chance to highlight why local permitting of clean energy projects is so essential if we are to meet our emission reduction goals. We're going to tell the story behind how you can become more aware of what you might encounter, both the pluses and the minuses, if your team is interested in pursuing something like this locally, should it be a campaign that's uh, available and cropping up. And we're going to learn from some of the examples of how CCL uh, concerned CCL volunteers might be able to best engage in this space. So again, thank you all so much for being here. If you are interested in sharing specifically why you are here tonight, any questions that you have for John or Ignacio in this first half, feel free to start putting those in the chat. I'm going to provide a brief background on this, some important considerations from the CCL angle. Then we'll pass it to our first two presenters to talk more a little bit about what local permitting reform is, why it's important, and provide some examples of advocacy materials that KO Media provides for interested campaigns. We'll then open it up for Q&A and then have the backside of this conversation be focused more on the state level with some important considerations and experiences that John will provide from Indiana. So with that, let's just start with a little bit of background. And the biggest thing that I wanted to provide from a CCL lens is that if you are interested, you know, after tonight and taking this on, I have five checklist items that I really just want you to make sure to look at yourself and your team and your campaign and look them in the eye and say, yes, we're willing to take this on in spite of these challenges. The first of which is, as you'll hear from our stories in a little bit, this is not a one and done activity that you can do in a weekend of hard work together. This is a campaign level commitment that takes a long time, sometimes years, and before you get started, it's just really important to be wide-eyed um, and open-minded about this being a commitment that, if you are interested, is not going to be something that resolves quickly. The second thing is, it might not even be a good local match. Obviously, a lot of the examples we're going to hear about um, clean energy permitting and siting happen when there is a project in development that's about to happen, and that might not be the case where you're at locally. So again, this isn't really applicable to all places or chapters right now, but it may be in the future with your community, and that's why we wanted to provide this information. The next thing I wanted to highlight is that this is by no means uh, the uh, easiest path for advocates as well. Uh, as you'll hear in some of the stories, this can get contentious, they can get heated, there is conflict at times in public hearings. It might not be your cup of tea, especially if you're used to with your CCL advocacy hat on, uh, being grounded in respect, appreciation, and gratitude, and having that reciprocated back to you in any of your interactions. So just know that if you go into this, uh, don't expect it to be a total cakewalk, and that there can be some contentious moments with people that might have um, the chance to line up in direct opposition to what you're trying to advocate for with the expansion of clean energy locally. We also want to encourage you, if you are interested in this, to check in with your state or regional coordinator to get that support you need to have that chance to really have them also weigh in and provide some advice, guidance, and additional resources. And then lastly, as you'll hear again from all of our storytellers tonight, the important also consideration is to work together. Individuals have been effective in this. There's plenty of examples of people making a difference uh, really on the one-to-one -one level, um, but with all group activities in CCL, you're going to be even more impactful and exponentially um, more able to have impact if you are able to work together. So with that, though, we are so grateful for all of you here. Keep putting those questions in the chat. 
We will get to them in the order that we receive them when we open it up for Q&A. Uh, but without further ado, I will pass it to both of you, John Ignacio. Thanks so much for being here. All right, great. Thanks so much, Brett. That was a wonderful introduction. Um, yeah, we're, we're happy to be part of this. So we're KO Media and we are a PR firm that's public relations, um, but we, we deal only with renewable energy developers. And uh, so, you know, we, we offer them a full service of what a typical PR firm uh, offers, but it's really tailored to what they're, what they're trying to do, get a, get a clean energy project into a community. And, and uh, you know, clean energy is kind of broad. Really, a lot of this is renewable energy. We're talking wind and solar. Um, and we, we really, a big part of it is advocacy on the local level to get these done. So we've got um, projects, uh, or our, our clients have projects, the developers, um, all across the nation, whether it's uh, wind, solar, big transmission projects, um, standalone battery storage projects. So um, yeah, great, great kind of overview there, John. Um, as Brett said, my name is Ignacio. And um, yeah, I mean, so what is a PR firm? I mean, I think everybody has an idea of what public relations means. And, you know, we go much further than that even. We, we're full suite uh, public relations firm, but also public affairs. Um, and, and then we go one more step and then you think about marketing. So they really aren't all interchangeable. They have unique, different, and, unique and different functions that they serve. Um, you know, at a high level, uh, public relations is really about engaging the community and trying to gauge and um, encourage folks to um, go through what we call a ladder of engagement or to transform hearts and minds around a particular issue. At our firm, it's always about creating advocates for clean and renewable energy um, and also projects that we think advance uh, sustainable practices, sustainability in general. So like I said, um, a lot of wind and solar projects are, are what we focus on. Uh, wind projects uh, that are utility scale, they're gonna be several wind turbines, maybe an average of 50 wind turbines, okay? So that's, you know, we're talking maybe 150 megawatt project there over 2000 acres. So a lot of people are gonna see these wind turbines, um, you know, and when we talk about solar, it's at least 50 megawatts. Some of them, you know, they can get up to uh, 5,000, uh, or, or sorry, 500 megawatts, um, maybe over a thousand megawatts, that's a gigawatt. Uh, so we're talking, it's about um, 10 acres per megawatt. And, you know, so these are big fields, farm fields that these are typically going into. And so just some background on that, that's, that's a big uh, part of this. It's a big space, very visible. Um, so we'll get into why that matters in a minute. Uh, but some of the things that are required for these projects when, um, when a developer wants to come into a community and you know, propose, propose a wind or solar farm, uh, they need that, that space obviously has to actually have wind or, or have solar um, you know, energy hitting it. That's, that's a lot of the country. So there should be one of these nearby, especially solar. Like every, every state, it has a decent amount of sun hitting it. Um, you saw the map at the beginning, if you're, if you're watching, uh, it's, it's all across the country, but it also needs to have um, transmission lines running by in very close proximity. So a lot of times these, these lines will be running right over the field where the solar operation is gonna be. And they need to be able to tie into those very big transmission lines. And then the final component to make these projects a success is that they need permits. They need to win the permits at the local level, at the state level, and we'll get into that. Great, thanks, John. So you heard us mention the uh, kind of the funnel of engagement, right? The ladder of engagement. And this is something, whether you call it this or not, that each of you as advocates at the local level are probably thinking about all the time. Every time you decide there's something important happening at the local community that is in alignment with your mission, 
you're, you should be thinking if you're not, if you aren't already about how you can get the community to move through this funnel. So it always starts with awareness, right? It's just um, making sure the community understands that a problem exists, that there's a challenge, that there's an opportunity. Um, it's providing adequate resources, education, um, fact, uh, clarifying misinformation. I heard somebody, I saw somebody in the chat post about, you know, the tremendous misinformation that is circulated around this particular issue in development. And that's exactly what we're trying to do is making sure we're providing that. So that's where your typical kind of marketing um, really supports a lot of the awareness and consideration phase. Um, conversion. So conversion is what we call this idea of where you're now having someone who might have not yet formed an opinion about a particular cause or issue, um, but because you've been having multiple touch points and you've been providing education, and you've had, you've actually gotten them to go from um, not having an opinion or being indifferent to formulating an opinion and actually deciding that they support or they're views are in alignment with the cause or issue that you're trying to advance. You know, typically once you have all those folks identified as supporters or, or people in alignment with you, now you really are starting to think about how, how can you um, load them up with calls to action to get them to do something else to be those advocates out in the field uh, and to continue to be those conduits of information. And so, um, that's kind of like a really key turning point in the funnel. Obviously, that loyalty is making sure that you provide fresh and new information and you keep folks engaged so that they're loyal to the cause. Um, and I think it, one of the key bits to that and we don't always talk about is, is making sure that we're honest and we're transparent and we're being accurate. I mean, a lot of times you see advocates out there that get lost in the shuffle of being really passionate about an issue um, and they're not being careful about fact checking and making sure that what they say is well supported. And I think it's key to, to building a cause and a coalition and, and having support that outlives just a moment in time is to make sure that, that what you share is truthful, honest, and that we're open to differences in, opi in, in opinion. Um, so that's kind of the funnel, but um, we'll, we'll give you some more examples of how that's actually um, come into play in, in a specific project along with y'all. Um, so I wanted to share this with you, which I think you guys would find this to be of interest. So uh, just not too long ago, right, I, I, the Pew, Pew Research Center conducted a survey back in 2021, and they tried to look at, you know, what exactly, um, how the community is, is really approaching the issue around renewable energy. Um, and we started to notice a trend here. So um, you're starting to see a lot of more alignment um, with uh, folks in the more liberal or uh, democratic party um, in alignment with the messaging. And you're seeing more and more kind of rural communities, conservatives, libertarians um, say that they disagree. What's unique about this is that it wasn't always like that. As you can see here, it, you know, being um, environmentally conscious and responsible was something that um, hadn't really become a politically polarized issue. And um, over the years, in the same way as, you know, there was not so much attention to fracking and it's kind of like also gone off some different arteries over time, you're seeing the same thing happen now with renewable energy. And so it's really important that we're having this discussion now because I think we can still get people back to center. We wanna make sure we're giving good information and that we're arming the, the community at large with um, the right tone and facts and message that people can understand that this really shouldn't be a partisan issue, but really one that is like a global issue for all of us to take seriously. Right before we kind of go into where the stopgap is, you know, we, we heard Brett and others mention how there is, um, we're really focused on permitting. But one of the things that I think um, all of your chapters around the country could really help us on in terms of moving the needle and, and, and really getting uh, more of the community behind an issue like this is to start early on with that education and awareness, even before pre-application. A lot of times when we're even thinking with our clients about submitting an application or we have a general timeline in place, there are different 
um, hurdles that get in the way because the community doesn't have the facts about solar or wind or battery storage. And it really would be helpful to have advocates like yourself that are really passionate about um, renewable energy to start that dialogue early, whether it's hosting an event for the community and providing that education so that it creates a space for developers who are eventually trying to advance this and bring all the economic benefits, et cetera, um, uh, to be more successful when they do get into uh, the application phase uh, of permitting. Yeah. So when when it's all done right, like when we can get that, um, you know, that messaging out there and and have the community on our side, uh, then the permitting process goes very smoothly. However, a lot of times we're brought in um, kind of not not quite as early as we'd like to. Um, maybe maybe a developer is having trouble because there's already uh, you know some pushback in the community, and so they need some extra help. We come in, and and this is this is kind of what we have to work with. Um, they need this permit in order to move forward, and there's a couple of of challenges in getting that. First, maybe there's not even language in the zoning ordinance of this community that allows a project to move forward. Maybe they don't have solar and wind um, in their zoning. And so that, that could be one obstacle. And I think uh, John, will, John Smiley will um, talk a little more about uh, some of these ordinance issues. But um, so that's, that's one hurdle that we may need to pull advocates in to help craft that ordinance or at least advocate for the, the types of rules that, that would allow this project to come into the community. But um, the pushback is, is going to be uh, in various forms. There's going to be people that are saying that they don't want it in their backyard. Um, you know, they don't want to see it. They think it's going to, you know, ruin their property value because who's going to want to buy this house if there's a wind turbine on the, on the neighboring 40? You know, I can, I can hear that if I'm, if I'm really careful um, and, and don't have any other noise around. I can see it. Um, so they, they have these concerns, but then there's also uh, misinformation like we talked about. They think that, that when rain hits a solar panel, it washes chemicals off the, off the glass and spoils the, the ground and the, and the water table. Um, you know, it's, it's all kinds of, of uh, things that, that have been thrown out there somehow, and, and it's hard to erase it out of people's minds. Um, they're, they're concerned with the loss of farmland. Uh, they think that the solar company is going to walk away and leave this, this solar field there and it's just going to deteriorate after the first hailstorm and just be a pile of garbage. Um, and then there's uh, people are concerned about some of these more philosophical issues like, well, solar and wind aren't producing 100% of the time. So you're going to cause more blackouts or you're going to you know, my electric rates are going to go crazy or, you know, you guys are getting subsidies. I don't think this is the way that, that the power system should go. And so we have a lot of challenges and a lot of um, fuel for uh, opposition that we, that we need to try to combat. So what we, what we like to go with to try to combat these, these messages is, is not um, that these projects are going to lower uh, our carbon footprint and, and have the grid be cleaner. And we do touch on that a little bit, but it's not what we focus on. We like to touch on private property rights. It, it really isn't your backyard, okay? It's, it's your neighbor's land. They have the right to do that. Um, we, we, we try to say it nicely, but uh, really, it's, if, if you want to stop a solar farm, if you want to stop a wind farm, you're trampling on people's private property rights to do that. So we should have our private property rights. Uh, these projects are very good for the economy. We, we love to um, push the messaging that there's going to be huge tax dollars coming into the community. Sometimes it'll, it'll double or triple a township's budget, operating budget. So it's really significant. Um, and then, you know, this is going to improve our energy security. We're going to be energy independent with this kind of domestic production. Uh, we like to talk about energy freedom. 
you know, it's, it's a lot of that kind of conservative messaging and we've found a lot of success with that. And then John Smiley will get into this more, I think, but um, every state is different and every community really has its own challenges in terms of the permitting process. And so some of them, you know, it's a state run process and that tends to go pretty smoothly and there's very well laid out regulations on what's expected from the developer. But um, then there's ones, there's places where in certain states, each county has, has a say on whether a project is gonna go through. And, and that's the case, even if it is at a state level, like the county, what the county says does make an impact with the state process. But a lot of states like um, Indiana, North Carolina, Louisiana, um, a lot of them, it's the county who has the say. And then other ones like Michigan, the township gets to control whether a project moves forward. So it could be, you know, a several million dollar project, hundreds of millions of dollars, um, and and a three member board can can deny that project. And so it's really these are CCL when when we ask you guys to get involved and and other advocates around the around the country um, in these small communities, like a core group of people can really make a big difference. In these uh, in these hearings and in these permitting processes, um, so there there was a project that we we got Citizens Climate Lobby involved in in Elkhart County, Indiana. Um, the town of Goshen has a Citizens Climate Lobby chapter, and we got in touch with uh, Paul Steery down there, um, who is the chapter leader, and and he connected us with uh, another group, um, and and we got a good core. A uh, bunch of folks that that were vocally in favor of this project, and we we got them going, and and they kind of took their own actions, came into the public hearing. That's kind of like you can imagine, you know. I know CCL. It's I've been a volunteer for a long time. I've i my my picture at the beginning was um, this past June in, in Washington when I was lobbying there. So, um, you know, you can think of these hearings where they actually make the decision of whether the project can go forward as uh, the, the vote when the bill comes up on the floor. So the, the beauty of these small um, community hearings is that you can participate in that process live and there's multiple kind of floor, I guess, sessions you could say, um, where you know maybe the planning commission has the issue first, and then they pass it on to the county planning commission, and then it goes back to the county or the township board, and then to the county board, and so you can participate and make public comment in all those um, at all those opportunities. But there's a lot of uh, time beforehand where you can submit letters to the editor, um, op eds. We work closely with uh, with advocates on the ground to do that kind of thing. All right. So <clears throat> thanks, John. That was a great overview. I, I'm thinking in terms of like, so we had this great project that we worked on, right, with Elkhart. And we we call this like uh, an integrated approach. It's not just a solution. Um, you heard me earlier talk about public relations and marketing and earned media and paid media and um, public affairs and how do all these worlds kind of collide and come together um, is really a, a, like a core mechanism of whether or not a project can be successful. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this for over 10 years and I've just seen the entire uh, kind of space for renewable energy development get progressively harder and harder and harder and harder to get through a permitting process. Um, and so we really start off with, um, I, I like to say, know, use, change your data. So know um, what your community looks like. Um, are people more conservative leaning? Are they, um, you know, are they libertarian? Is there a lot of, um, you know, non-party affiliates? Understand what that looks like. How many, you know, how many landowners are affected by the project? Um, is there a main street? Is there a need in the community that's already public and 
um, you know, the potential revenue that would come from a project would help you meet the needs, an existing need that the community already has. So really it's like that initial research, understanding the socio-political climate um, so that then you can come up with a strategy that is responsive to the information that you gather um, and eventually hopefully we're successful in securing a permit. So, you know, with Elkhart, it was about um, trying to figure out how we could show support through earned media and um, calling and writing officials and having them sign letters of support and to provide political cover for the local community. Early on in this project, we thought that there was a very simple path forward at the local level to get this uh, in place. And, and then, you know, we initially weren't successful. Essentially, they came back, they had a, a negative vote and said, we need you to adopt a solar ordinance. So, you know, somebody asked the question in the chat and it's like, how do you know if, if this is all about going, you know, at the local level or county or state? And it really depends. A lot of jurisdictions, especially, especially in these rural parts, they have no guidance to handle a development of this scale. They don't have the staff, they don't have the support. <clears throat> and so they, they defer to the state or any existing legislation that may exist. And so um, it really is about understanding that. And um, sometimes our community leaders tell you, hey, we just, we, there's, there's this particular person in the community that just really doesn't want this to happen. And I got him in my ear, can you, can you change the sentiment? So uh, Elkhart was one of those situations where we needed to make sure we had as many people, if not more, that were loud and in support of the project um, as there were people who were being really vocal about um, their opposition for the project. Um, and then, you know, I already spoke to the approach, but some of those tactics, it's like letters to the editor, you know, anytime you see a, a news story out there, think of that as an opportunity for you to have a conversation with the broader community, submit something in writing and response, add a comment, or um, if the media is just simply you know, you see something as part of the of the news cycle. Well, that might be an opportunity for you to add something new to the dialogue that's happening in the form of a letter to the editor. Typically, a lot of the local newspapers and even bigger ones they provide very clearly on their website who the appropriate person is to receive that, um, like or whether even there is a, an email or some other mode that they would request that you submit that in and they'll they typically are looking for content from local folks so take advantage of that space in your own uh, local advocacy um i mean ads in the local newspaper that's a really good way to make sure you're still reaching people when the local um when the, maybe the newspapers aren't treating your issue as fairly but you want to make sure you're still reaching the same people so again you provide a different narrative well, consider you know raising some funds and and purchasing even what we a full page ad in the paper and get people's attention with the the right information or a different approach or simply just clarifying or um, misinformation or what sometimes we call like a myth buster. So again, you don't always have to wait for someone else to do something for free. If if you know that getting the the right information out there will make a difference, it's sometimes worth. Um, a little bit of expense to do that. Um, you know, postcard mailers was something that was successful here. There's an example here, but we typically, like I said, you, we start with our data. So once you know where people live and who folks are, what their leanings are, we partnered up with the local union representative and he was kind enough to write a, a quote of support. And we included that on the mail piece. And, you know, believe it or not, you know, sometimes folks have really strong reaction because they know this person or they feel a certain way about um, creating new jobs and opportunities for workers. And that makes all the difference in getting them to decide to get behind the issue. So, um, yeah, I don't want to belabor that, but um, those are some of the things that we took into account on the Elkhart project. And then, you know, we, we ultimately did uh, pull out a win here. It, we, so, like Ignacio said, they needed a solar ordinance um, before we could move forward. So at first we were trying, there was like a shortcut uh, that was being proposed. We tried that. They got threatened with a lawsuit. There's a lot of like litigation, um, you know, or potential for litigation in these projects. So, um, but the second time we did pull it off and uh, you know, those, those items that Ignacio covered that cost money, 
I think that the developer, like if, if it's not us that's approaching you in the community, if you're going and finding the project and you know it's not one of our developers, one of our clients, I, I think reaching out to them, asking them, like proposing the idea of having a postcard mailer, having an ad in the paper, what you know, and then they can pay for it. They can probably design it too. But um, you know, I think what we did there, what pulled off this win was we got a lot of signatures on on a letter of support and were able to present that on the record prior to the hearing and, and even brought in um, an additional copy in the hearing so that we could have that visual impact of this thick stack of, of uh, you know, letters of support. And so all, all those tactics, those paid tactics, whether it was the, the, um, the paid media, the mailers, all that was kind of driving people to this online letter of support page. It's similar to what, what you guys know, you know, it's, it's writing Congress. Um, but in this case, it's writing to the, to the county. And let's go next to our other John friend, John Smiley, a CCL liaison and volunteer leader out of Indiana. And the floor is yours to give us more of a window into your experience on the local and state level with the work that you have encountered in Indiana. Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is John Smiley. I'm a CCL volunteer. I live in Indiana in Montgomery County in a little town called Crawfordsville. And I'm part of our uh, District 4 uh, team here and also liaison to Senator Young. But recently I got involved in a permitting struggle locally in my county with uh, solar. Uh, we have a couple big developments that we're looking to site here and it became quite a contentious issue. Uh, some of this is going to be redundant with what John and Ignacio had to say, so I'll probably move faster over the stuff that's redundant and focus more on the individual story. But as they mentioned, when we're talking about wind and solar siting on private land, that is controlled at the state level, but each state can choose how they delegate that authority down to the lower levels. Um, I am most familiar with Indiana, and I'm a little bit familiar with Illinois and Ohio. Um, so often that authority is delegated down to counties, but counties may have varying levels of leeway uh, depending on the state. So what has happened in Illinois just recently um, that I was very excited about, uh, because I wish we had one in Indiana, was they just passed a not more stringent than style law for wind and solar, where they were running into issues where due to the bill they passed recently, CEGAA, which is their big climate bill, they have all these targets, but individual counties were blocking a lot of the development. So the state house decided we've got to have a common set of standards so that we can actually get these projects done. Um, so that recently passed in the lame duck session and the governor signed into law. So it said, hey, counties, this is the maximum setback you can have, the maximum restriction you can have. Um, Indiana tried to do that two sessions ago, but failed. Uh, and they failed because the counties balked. Uh, the counties did not like the idea. They did not like the state coming in and trying to take away control from them. And the article in the Indy Star described it. One legislator said it was like a hostage negotiation where they shot the hostage. So they abandoned that attempt that year. And then last year, they passed some voluntary standards and said, hey, if you want to be recognized and known as a renewable ready community, like you want developers to come there, we will give you a set of standards that you can align to and you'll get your gold star as a wind ready or solar ready community. There was going to be a financial incentive attached to that as well, where the state was going to pay the county $1 per every solar and wind megawatt hour generated every year. But for whatever reason, that got stripped away. So it's literally just a, hey, gold star. So if a developer sees that, you can tell a developer, I meet the state standards. That'll be easy to work with. Ohio has gone in the opposite direction. Ohio gave uh, local units the power to block wind and solar. But they do not have the power to develop fossil production. So the Ohio River Valley still has quite a bit of fracking going on. And Ohio has decided, uh, well, we're gonna let counties block wind and solar, but we're not gonna let them block fracking. 
So just in these three bordering states, there's quite a range of things going on. And I think John mentioned this, but Michigan is also looking at doing what Illinois did. And I think part of the reason they're looking at doing that is there are, and then I just have some rumors on this, some county officials that are kind of asking the state to take it out of their hands because it can be a locally contentious issue. So what happened here in my little county, um, starting with May and going through December, uh, the chain of events here. So in May, uh, the anti-wind Facebook group, uh, my county had a permitting struggle for wind a few years ago that ended in a lawsuit. Um, there's an article in Indiana Environmental Report about this, about how misinformation was killing wind in Indiana. Um, but basically, we effectively blocked wind in 2019, and there's this active Facebook group. And then they noticed like, hey, the county started to have meetings about solar development. So in June, um, the county council denied a tax abatement for the solar development that was the furthest along in the process that was down on the southern border of our county and Putnam County, the county to the south. At the same time, the planning commission, which is just an advisory body, but they do drop a lot of these ordinances in our county, proposed extending the setbacks for solar. So it was at about 200 feet and 200, 150 to 200 feet is a pretty standard, and they want to extend it to 500 feet from a non-participating residence. That might not sound like a lot, but when you draw a circle that's 500 feet, uh, that's 18 acres of land that's being bitten out of any development and reaching pretty far out in your neighbor's yard, whereas 200 feet is more like, it's like four acres pi r squared, it grows fast. So that's when I started paying attention. So then in July, I teamed up with our local League of Women Voters uh, group. Um, I'm the only CCLer in the county. Um, most of my fellow CCLers in my chapter are located up in, in Lafayette, where Purdue is. So I teamed up with the League of Women Voters locally and wrote a piece against the setbacks uh, and mentioned many of the benefits that solar could bring to our county uh, and why it wouldn't be good to overly restrict that development. The meeting at the end of the month, the county commissioners decided, okay, um, we're gonna accept some of these proposals from the planning commission, but we don't want to extend the setbacks. We're, we're gonna keep it at 200 feet. And one woman I worked with, the LWV, absolutely credited the piece that I wrote with, with that decision. And the, the commissioner at the time even said, yeah, I want to give people some breathing room, but I don't want to kill a project. Um, so I had attended that county meeting in person, ready to speak. Uh, but like the very first decision they made was, we're, we're not going to do that extension. So I didn't end up speaking. Well, then in August, the planning commission met again the commissioners had rejected their changes they're meeting meeting again to decide well do we send it back to the commissioners and say no we reaffirm these well they didn't get the votes to do that uh even though one of the people on the planning commission and also on the county council was you know a member of this this anti-solar group so that was another county meeting got a little heated a lot of people shared their opinions in the public comment section and then we move on to September. So at the end of August, I was kind of feeling like, hey, we've we've reached a reasonable level. This development can go ahead. A couple changes that gave people a little more breathing room went through, but I, I feel like this is reasonable. This development's going ahead. That's great. But then in September, uh, the anti-solar group really upped their recruitment and petition efforts. And I had been kind of monitoring the anti-wind Facebook group at the time. Uh, because it was still public. And honestly, the people on that anti-group were always on top of when all the county meetings were. So that was one way that I was keeping track of it because it's not always easy to know when the meetings are because sometimes it's at Wednesday at 4 p.m. Sometimes it's Monday at 8 a.m. So fortunately, my job was flexible enough to attend these, uh, but it's it's not always easy to do. But they really upped their recruitment efforts. They started holding public meetings at the library. They started gathering signatures for petition. And then in October, they begin a flurry of letters to the editor. Uh, and they continue to do meetings at the library, continue to gather or petition signatures. So 
I respond with my own letter to the editor, again, about the benefits of solar and, and what we could gain by embracing it. I also do a presentation uh, hosted by the local legal women voters. I do that in person. I do it online. And then I also go up to Tippecanoe County up north uh, and uh, present it there as well. And we've got a link to that presentation in the footnotes here. But the presentation was half about the benefits of the IRA, which had just passed at the time, and half about the benefits of solar power. So it's trying to, again, build support, um, recruit other people to write LTEs as well, and counter just this flurry of LTEs that was appearing in the local paper. Unfortunately, we get into November, and the county authorities that be were having their attorney uh, draw up a plan to put some more restrictions on wind and solar. So it's starting to become apparent that the, the efforts of the anti-group are having some influence. Um, they start getting yard signs out. They start fundraising, do radio ads. Uh, they put a float in the parade, uh, in the Christmas parade, which we'll see a picture of shortly. And then the planning commission met the day before Thanksgiving uh, to send their new plan to the commissioners. And I didn't make that meeting. Uh, I was out of town because it was the day before Thanksgiving. And then I had a bit of a hard time getting a copy of the ordinance. Um, as John Ignacio mentioned, it can be helpful to get in touch with your developers directly because they are on top of this stuff professionally. So they ended up getting a copy of the ordinance and I saw it. And I saw that the ordinance was, was totally spurious. Uh, it was written in a way to effectively make solo development impossible. Uh, you would have to meet sound levels of 32 decibels, which uh, a whisper is 30 decibels. Um, if you're standing outside on a mildly breezy day, it could be anywhere from 30 to 40 decibels. Uh, it was going to be physically impossible to hold up a microphone and actually pass that 32 decibel threshold. And there are some other provisions as well about you know things like heat island effect and things that were just going to make it physically impossible to build solar. So I wrote one last letter to the commissioners laying all that out like, hey, this, this looks like it will kill all development. Um, unfortunately, December 12th, they did one more commissioners meeting and there was more public comment. Uh, I was pro. Uh, one other woman was pro. And then a, a representative from the developer was pro. And then unfortunately, there were about a dozen anti-people. Um, these meetings often attract people who are you know, not happy with what's going on, people who want to stop what's happening. Um, your county may have a majority or a plurality of people who are either neutral or pro solar or wind. But Showing up to these meetings is a big time commitment. And unfortunately, you know, being angry and wanting to stop something is a huge motivator. Whereas, you know, thinking something would be nice uh, isn't as huge of a motivator to, you know, leave work early to go to a meeting at 4 p.m. on a Wednesday. And, you know, we'll talk a bit more about Michael Thomas's work, but, uh, you know, he's mentioned, you know, you, you may share a nice post about solar on your Facebook, but unless people are, you know, contacting their commissioners and going to these meetings, it's not going to tip the scale. So I talked to the energy lawyer who was there at the time, like, am I correct in my understanding? This is pretty much going to chill any future solar development. He said, like, yeah, pretty much. So unfortunately, my county has been frozen out of both wind and any large scale solar development. So unfortunately, this kind of opposition is happening all around the country. I've talked to people in, in Michigan. Um, I've read the articles of stuff happening in Ohio. Uh, and it follows a very similar pattern. A lot of the same disinformation popping up again and again. A, a lot of the same concerns that John Ignacio listed were a lot of the same things I heard here. And not only are there local people that don't like the idea of it in their county. There are also groups nationally 
that are dedicated to spreading this disinformation. And there's been uh, the journalist Michael Thomas and his Substack distilled.earth uh, has done a number of these pieces recently on the kind of people and groups spreading the disinformation. There was a great piece in NPR recently about a group out of Virginia called Citizens for Responsible Solar, which again, their purpose wasn't so much as responsible solar, so much as stopping it from happening. Um, I also talked to a journalist who, for a piece that recently appeared in the Indiana Capitol Chronicle and uh, the counterpart piece for that in Ohio, uh, Robert Zulo, about these struggles nationwide and how you know, there are groups in local counties that want to stop it. And then also he did a good job interviewing the farmers that want to lease their land, that want this to happen, and are a bit mystified at the people trying to stop it. So strategies you can use. Um, I wasn't successful, so some of these things I could have done better, obviously. And a lot of these are the same things that John Ignacio mentioned. Uh, step one, gather allies. Uh, that might be your, your local CCL chapter. Uh, it might be another advocacy group. It might be teaming up with the landowners in your county that want to lease because it's an opportunity for them and they believe in it. Uh, show up at the meetings. Again, I understand it's not going to be possible for everybody. Uh, unfortunately, showing up at the meetings can also get a little contentious. Nothing happened to me, but the developer told me that some of the landowners didn't want to go to the meetings anymore because things were becoming so contentious uh, with their neighbors. So there can be some, some conflict. Um, I'd recommend developing relationships with county officials directly. This is probably the biggest gap in what I did here locally. Uh, I probably should have talked to them more directly. Um, I don't know if it would have made a difference because they probably had more people in their ear from the other direction. But I, I wrote the letters, but I didn't show up and, and talk to them directly. Uh, letters to the editor are good. Uh, wrote one of those, recruited a couple people to write a few more of those. Gave the presentations, as I mentioned. And one thing that you're you're going to want to do, and I shared a link to this in the in the chat, is understand the model solar ordinance in your state. And again, if you've been in touch with the developer, this is something that they can help you with uh, in understanding too, because you may not understand like, well, is a six foot berm a big deal? Uh, is that reasonable? Is is a thirty two decibel limit reasonable? Is a heat island study reasonable? By the way, those last two things are not reasonable. Um, and, you know, learn a little bit more about what are the reasonable position, provisions, because the ordinances that block this stuff usually don't say no wind, no solar. They slip in things like you got to have a two-mile setback for your turbine, and the developer is going to look at the map and say, okay, there is zero land that I can make that happen, or it might have a, an insane decibel limit that you can't possibly hit. So it's not going to explicitly ban it, but it might do it on the slide. So if you understand what the model ordinance says and how what your county is proposing compares to that, that gives you a good comparison point. Because if you're just going off what the developer says, that might not carry a lot of trust with, with the other people. Whereas if you're going off of, hey, this is from Indiana University, this is the model, like, and we're like way off base compared to that. By the way, that picture there, that is the actual picture uh, from my county's Christmas parade. Um, that's the float that they had. And uh, you can see some of the yard sign examples uh, on top of that float. I talk mainly about what I did with the county, but if there is another approach you can take, and that is to try to advocate at the state level and do what Illinois did and get a, a no more stringent than bill passed. So if you've got a relationship with some state reps that could bring that forward. And again, it might not even necessarily be a red state, blue state thing. Um, Indiana is a blue state, but Oklahoma is a very deep red state and they have you know, completely embraced wind power there. Iowa as well. So even if you're in a deep red state, it doesn't mean that you couldn't get progress like this at the state level. Indiana came close. I think you've inspired a lot of people here, John. Let's give a huge round of applause again for obviously all of your experience and taking the time to really put together a narrative that helps inform all of us to be more aware and informed and ready to go should this show up as an opportunity in our own backyard. That 
The reason why we're really focusing on this tonight, obviously with their expanded policy agenda, is that we in CCL are uniquely situated to have an outsized impact and influence in the positive direction of these issues because we understand how to meet with local leaders in a respect-based way to build those relationships of trust and move us in direction with others around us in our communities to see the world differently and help really uh, make an impact in this issue to help build that support and highlight the broad scale majorities or pluralities, depending on where you're at, in your community do wanna see this happen. And so after tonight, if you are interested in really being able to um, explore this further, I know both John O'Brien and John Smiley have made their contact information generously available. And we also have a link here to our forums. That's just cclusa.org forward slash forums. We'd absolutely love for you to share what's going on locally. Uh, we'd love for additional examples of this outside of Elkhart County, Indiana, and the work that John has been doing in Indiana as well to um, help highlight stories of CCLers making a difference and having projects come in on the megawatt or gigawatt scale uh, that you know weren't possible without our involvement. Um, and so we hope that tonight you found this training empowering and connecting to the work that you can do locally. As always, if you have feedback, you're more than welcome to email me, brett at citizensclimate.org. And with that, tonight, I'm going to close by unmuting everyone that's still here to give a huge round of applause to our speakers. Thank you all so much for sticking around and for making a difference in your own communities and being the climate leaders you are. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.